Hello, and thank you for listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. I am Teresa Kuhn, helping you live wealthier. Resources are available for you at livingwealthyradio.com. Hi, I'm Joshua, producer for Living Wealthy Radio. Today's talk is a really insightful look at the reasons investments underperform and our best laid plans don't go quite like we thought they would. People speculate based on emotion, even without realizing it. And this is a tough love kind of no-nonsense talk that breaks down why very popular financial strategies so often fail and why dividend-bearing whole life insurance has been such a reliable tool for so many years uh, for shoring up your financial future and really avoiding risk inherent in the market. Our guest today goes through the various myths and misunderstandings about savings and wealth management and retirement, and I think you're going to be rather surprised by some of the things you hear. His capital critical mass, or CCM, concept makes so much sense. He's going to give you a perspective change about the way you evaluate your financial future and make financial decisions. And he's going to show you just how powerful the bank on yourself option really is, whether the market is up or way down. So don't go anywhere. This one gets really good. Today's enriching fact of the day is that you can cure loneliness and find connection by returning to ritual. One in five Americans suffers from distinct loneliness. In spite of our digital connections, we lack meaningful connection with other human beings, and we're worse off for it. So, for example, when we lose our job or experience the death of a loved one or we fail in some way, we tend to pull back and suffer alone instead of getting help from our social connections. Of course, this only compounds the problem and isolates us further. We don't heal. We don't grow. We just move on eventually. Researchers have studied what are called blue zones in various places of the world. These are societies that experience higher levels of happiness, longevity, and fulfillment. You can find them throughout the world, but they all have one thing in common. They prioritize connection. They have strong social ties that grow them and nurture them. But you don't have to live in one of these blue zones to be able to cure or avoid loneliness. We can look at these cultures and incorporate their wisdom to generate meaningful connection in our own lives. And what seems to underlie the connections these cultures all have is distilled in one simple word, ritual. Ritual is a powerful concept. Like a habit, a ritual is an exercise you return to over and over again that gives you meaningful, albeit usually intangible, results. In many cultures, this ritual is religious. People find deeply meaningful connection with their fellow adherents for a cause or a belief. But others find their ritual in lengthy, relaxed dinners with friends. Some go for communal walks after dark. Others invest heavily into their family relationships. But whatever the form of ritual, these people return to it in good times and bad. And this is key, because some people come to these rituals after a bad week or day and need their batteries recharged. But others come to that same particular ritual after experiencing an emotional high or a life win, and they can recharge others in that ritual. So whether they are there to give or take, they share in the ritual through good times and bad, 
and it nurtures them and shows them the meaning in life. For you, it may be as simple as a game night with your friends once a week, or a purposeful family dinner. Whatever you already like to do with those in your life, intensify it, magnify it, ritualize it. We were not meant to be loners. We were all made to experience each other. We were created to help and be helped. Today's enriching fact reveals how sharing a ritual with others who value and understand you is the key to growing relationships and overcoming loneliness. And regardless of what storms you encounter in life, you can return to this anchor of connection to rebalance and grow. You're listening to Living Guelphy Radio with Teresa Kuhn. If you're looking for financial strategies for growing and protecting your wealth, check out Bank on Yourself by Living Wealthy Financial. You never know where the economy is headed or what the stock is going to do next. But fortunately, you don't have to. Bank on Yourself offers proven strategies for families, individuals, and businesses to safely invest their money outside the market while growing and accessing those funds on their own terms. This is perfect for those of you who would like to fund major expenses like college, vacations, weddings, business expansions, and medical emergencies, or even create a stream of tax-free retirement income. Bank on Yourself allows you liquidity, tax-favored growth, and complete control over your investment. And it's guaranteed to grow, no matter what's going on in the markets. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit livingwealthyfinancial.com. Joining us today is Keith Mon, a longtime friend and fellow Bank on Yourself authorized advisor. He was practically raised in financial services and has extensive experience in advanced planning, estate planning, qualified plans, deferred compensation plans. And he's here to discuss some of the much better wealth building alternatives to Wall Street that his clients benefit from and shares how to develop a guaranteed income stream throughout retirement. Welcome to Living Wealthy Radio, Keith. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Tell us a little bit about your journey and with your background, how did you come to embrace out of, outside the box financial concepts like bank on yourself? Well, bank on yourself is uh, is kind of a term of art. It's not a technical term. It's a philosophy. And when I started in the business in 81, in my dad's office, the first thing he taught me was teach people how to become their own financing source by building this bucket of money in the cash value life insurance that they can use for whatever, whenever they want, and basically borrow from themselves on terms that they control. And if you show them the value proposition of this type of financial instrument, it's going to open their eyes to see that it has a place somewhere to some degree in every single person's financial situation. In fact, over the years, I haven't found a financial situation except for people who are completely uninsurable who can't benefit to some degree by having some degree of this type of financial instrument within the the big picture. So it was the bank on yourself concept while being formally memorialized and a lot of public awareness has become, you know, people have become aware of it due to the, the advertising and the things, the way it's been marketed was really a concept that's been around for a very long time that a lot of people who've been in the business a long time knew and understood and used effectively. So bank on yourself to me was just a, an evolution 
a refinement or memorializing that really continued the philosophy that I learned first thing in the business. So if it was a strategy that your father and his contemporaries used in traditional financial planning, why did mainstream financial professionals steer away from this concept that works so well? Well, I think there's a number of answers to that, but primarily through the, you know, up until we'll call it the mid nineties, you basically had, and, and really it was the late eighties. You basically whole life was basically a savings vehicle that most people in America, 50% of the people in America used whole life as a savings plan since the thirties and forties. It was a big component. We didn't have mutual funds until the late seventies and, 401ks didn't come around. And then, you know, so that was the primary way people saved on a systematic, consistent basis. And so the money would be there if they ever needed it for emergency expense or unexpected expense or opportunities. And that was, they were ingrained to understand this is what you do. And their dads before them and their dads before them did it. And they just did it. And then, you know, um, the policies were not crafted the way we craft them now. There was not a lot of overfunding. So it took a long time for money to break even. But knowing it was a long-term saving strategy, people would commit the money and save it. And, you know, down the road, many years, they would have a bucket of money that, that was available for, for any numerous amount of things, you know. But I think what happened was when mutual funds started becoming popular as a way to invest, um, and interest rates were really high in the, in the seventies, late seventies in Carter's period, you had money market rates at, you know, 16, 17%. People started going, why would I keep my money in my policy earning three and a half to four when I could borrow it out and put in a money market at 16 and have a guaranteed positive arbitrage, which I get that. That makes sense. And people did that. And for the longest time, life insurance companies would say, this is an emergency store of storage of money. It's available if you have other opportunities. And that's what people did. They said, well, I've got another opportunity. Got a money market at 16%. I'm going to borrow the money out. Well, that, you know, a lot of people did that. And that was like, that was like a run on the bank for insurance companies, right? And so they had to come out with ways to give people an incentive to keep the money there. And they came out with universal life, which was interest sensitive. So now their storyline was, the insurance company's storyline was, well, keep it in the policy and you'll still get the current interest rates out there. And you'll still get the tax breaks. So there's no reason to move it. So when that happened, those policies became kind of the, 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 you know, the flavor of the month type of thing for a decade. And then we go into various evolutions and how things have changed. And, um, but whole life became boring to, to put it in a way. It, there wasn't the excitement of the big gains in the market. Look, in the decade of the eighties, the equity markets did over 16% a year and so did the bond markets. You could throw a dart and do well at the, at the pages on the stock pages if you put them on the wall. No, everybody made money. So it was kind of hard to get people to understand, you know, put something here that's safe and it'll always grow and there'll be no market exposure or risk of loss. And at that point in time, very few people had ever experienced a drop in the market at 30 or 40% and they didn't even know that that could happen. So they were easily led to do speculative things. That's how everybody figured out how they're going to build their wealth. We're going to be in the market. We're going to do this. And that's, that's really what happened. Now, one of the things that I came to understand 
because in the early 80s, 81, 2, and 3, early in my career, I was doing a lot of defined benefit plans for professionals. And before ERISA changed the rules, you know, we had the opportunity at a point in time when tax rates were very high to take people making a lot of money and defer a lot of it. We could defer it to a later point in time. It wasn't uncommon to put hundreds of thousands of dollars away for somebody making a lot of money pre-tax. And the, the, the trade-off was that in order to get that much money put away, you had to use guaranteed instruments. It was an inverse relationship. The lower the return, the more you had to put away to get to a certain point in time. And in those plans, we would use guaranteed life insurance and guaranteed annuities. And yes, they were boring. The returns weren't exciting. In fact, a lot of people ask me, how did you get people to accept three and a half to four percent returns when the markets were going nuts? I said, well, at that point in time, tax rates were so high, it was kind of like the tax tail wagging the dog. It was easy to go to somebody paying a lot of tax who was really mad at the amount of tax they paid and showed them a way to not have to pay tax. And the rate of return was secondary to them. They just hated paying all this tax. But it's interesting because hindsight's always twenty twenty. And as I've gone through the years and looked back, and some of those clients who started with me in the early 80s who were with me and retired with me, and I took them through retirement, it was it was pretty common to you know have a situation where they'd come in, they're retiring, they want to now talk about the next phase of their planning. What are we going to do in retirement? Where's their money going to come from? And I would say I would I know what I've got with you. I've got the assets in your defined benefit plans, the qualified money. Tell me about your other holdings. And these are people that had stockbrokers through the years and, you know, Merrill Lynch. And they, I knew they had other money. They made a lot of money. And, and it was more common than not for them to say, I don't really have anything but what you have. I said, well, how can that be? How can you not have more money? You made a lot of money. I got a few million bucks for you. But, I mean, my stuff was safe. It was guaranteed. Well, we lost money over time and we made some bad investments and, you know, so so in hindsight, it became kind of uh, clear that, you know, turtle and hair. I mean, my stuff wasn't exciting, but it was there. They couldn't lose it. It was there. They could count on it. Just like a pension, you can count on it, right? And it made me realize that, you know, people are taking a lot of risk and they're not getting where they need to go. And very few of them understand how important it is to have guarantees and predictability and how important that is at the point in their life when they start taking income and living off their investments. And very few people were educating clients or teaching them for any number of reasons, you know. Um, but it seemed to me that there was a better way to approach things and to focus on what's really important. And the only way sometimes to know what's important is to actually live it and go down the road many years and know how the story ends if you don't do things a certain way. And, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to where, you know, about 10 years ago, especially with the evolution of the, the insurance industry, specifically with income rider annuity products, you know, I can create income streams that are twice as high as traditional portfolios can create guaranteed for life with no risk of loss. So why would anybody going into retirement, and being at a point in their life where they have to live off their investments, want to do anything less than something that guarantees the income forever, no matter how they live, long they live, at a rate that's much higher than you could ever responsibly take off a traditionally built portfolio. Look, when I talk with clients and I tell them, you know, 
what would you rather have? 10,000 a month in retirement for the rest of your life, no longer, no matter how long you lived or 10,000, maybe some months, 5,000, but not really knowing what you're going to be able to have. I mean, they would always say, I'd rather have guarantee a 10 grand. I worked with a lot of executives from the big three automotive companies here in Detroit, and they had big pensions. They had a good pension. They had Social Security. And between their pension and Social Security, which was guaranteed, they would try to live off that, and they would keep saving their investment for one case and everything else because they were afraid to spend it because they never knew if the market would tank, if they would lose it. They still were afraid to spend money that they could easily spend. But what it made me realize was having that safety net of monthly guaranteed income whereby if they spend it all month, it's okay because they go to the mailbox next month and it's there again. And they can budget from that and they can have lifestyle from that and they can travel and they don't have to worry about, do I need to count on the market to have the kind of lifestyle I want? No. The other thing people fail to realize is the market's not compounding. Whereas the stuff we do you know, with insurance instruments, there's true compounding. Compounding is how you build wealth. The market's just an index on any given day. There's no compounding. And for people to want to build wealth, they need to take advantage of compounding. They cannot leave that on the table as an attribute of any financial instrument that they're not going to have. So when you take a lot of these things together and think it through and look at it and have the benefit of experience to see how the story ends if you do things wrong, then you kind of come to the conclusion that this is a pretty simple solution. So, you know, we try to make it so that our clients have no risk exposure or at least mitigate it as much as we can. Now, I'm not saying I don't believe in balance. I totally believe there should be overall balance in any approach to planning. But that leads me to the the, the quandary that exists, I think, in the industry of the reversed, you know, asset pyramid, so to speak. Everybody is starting with speculation. Everything they do is speculation. 529s for their kids in the market. 401ks, 403bs in the market. Mutual funds in the market. And people have lost sight of how important it is to have a percent of their assets and stuff that's safe, that's constantly compounding and growing so that they have a foundation they can fall back on if everything else that's speculative goes to hell in a handbasket. It only takes one time for them to realize the power uh, of the more conservative approach. It's, the more conservative approach doesn't mean you'll have less wealth. In most cases, you're going to have more wealth because you're not going to sustain any losses in the down years. Every two out of 10 years or three out of 10 years, you have a down year in the market. And then it takes four or five to recover. You know, most people, if you ask them, what has the market done in the last 20 years, which is basically an upward trajectory time horizon, um, it's done about six and a half, six point eight percent S and P, including dividends. But that's the average rate of return. That's not what their mark, their money is really grown at. The internal rate of return of their money is more like three and a half. So it's not what they think. It's, uh, it's less than what they think. In fact, it's it's a lot less considering all the risks they take to get that. We know we can we can do better than that. We just have to take time to educate and teach and make sure that they understand the why of of our recommendations and what we're trying to do for them. And and then they usually come around and see the see the truth. Well, you said an awful lot. Let me make a few comments. When the market's bad, um, and thankfully I don't manage wealth, I just focus on the insurance products that you talked about. When the market's bad, I do get those calls, but I get the calls from the perspective of, Teresa, what do you have that can save me? I'm scared. The market's going down. I just noticed, you know, the values of my portfolio are going down rapidly. 
I don't want to open up my statements. You know, we live in, you know, uh, what is it? There's that saying with amnesia, right? Um, mm-hmm. People forget what 2008 was like. They only remember the last couple years, right? And so when those times happen, which they will, they always do, markets always rebalance. What comes up must come down. People will call us. And it will be that frightened voice. And what solutions do you have? Right. The other thing you said that I think is really important. I mean, you said so many great things there, but talk about how when you're invested in the market and the indexes, you're not compounding your money. Well, yeah, there's, you know, Einstein said it best when he said the eighth wonder of the world is compound interest. Money growing on money, growing on money. Interest begets interest begets interest. In whole life, you have dividends that beget dividends that beget dividends. You have an acceleration over time as you continue to compound and grow on a guaranteed schedule. And um, when you're in the market, it's just a daily value at the end of the day. What's my portfolio worth based on a daily value? Like an index, for example. An index fund is just the index value at the end of the day. It's up, it's down. Okay, you may have gains over time that are due to, you know, unrealized gains, that, but you don't have them if you, unless you cash it in. So it's unrealized and tomorrow it may not be there because the market could correct and then tomorrow it's gone again. So there's no compounding. It's just a, really it's a crapshoot. Um, and, and as I said before, it's okay. I mean, I, Let's take the, uh, the wealth pyramid, you know, where you list, you know, safe assets on the bottom is your foundation and then you get more risky as you go to the tip and then the super risky stuff's at the very top, which most people don't even use. But what are most people doing? Their pyramid's upside down. Everything they have starts with speculation. There's no foundation. There's a concept I use with clients for a long time that's more of a term of art instead of a technical term. It's, it's called critical capital mass. And what I refer to when I discuss critical critical capital mass for the client is this is a number. This is a figure. Your critical capital mass is a figure that we know if we have that much money at this point in time, I can pull the trigger, convert it to an income. And that income will provide for you the rest of your life. I can work backwards to figure out what that figure should be based on what they tell me they'd like to have. And then I can install that and make sure it's there. Now, to the extent there's surplus in their model, They've got surplus income or we can get them to critical capital. Now, they might say, I need 10000 a month to live on. I know what it's going to take to get that. And to the extent there's extra money, then they've kind of got the permission slip or earn the right to speculate. But at least I know if all the speculation goes to hell in a handbasket, they still can revert back to counting on the foundational income from the critical capital mass. And so we're always looking to see how close they are. How close are you to critical capital mass based on what you tell me you're looking to achieve? And let's get there first before we take risk. Let's get you there first before we take risk. And um, compounding is very important. People don't understand how important it is. You know, you can compound at 3% and have a lot more money. You know, like I said, the market, they say the market's averaged 67 to 6.9% the last 20 years. And in fact, if you look at what the S&P's done, that's about where it's at. If you took a 10-year average annual return, here's the other thing. Thinking outside the box a little. When people pick the funds for, let's say, their 401k and they get that list of funds they can pick, you know, that their employer gives them. Here's all the fund choices. You can spread the money around. You can whatever. 
what do they do? They look for the funds that have the highest 10-year average return, and they immediately assume that's the best fund. The problem with that is it's not the best fund. It should be illegal to even use that metric to have people give guidance to people for what funds to select. That just means it's the most volatile fund. And let me give you an example. By way of an example, if I, if I have X amount of money to start and the first year grows at 100%, second year declines by 50%, so very volatile. Next year goes up 100%, and then the fourth year goes down 50%. I'm net up 100%. And if I divide by the number of years, I've averaged 25% a year. But in that same scenario, 10,000 would have grown to 20, would have been back down to 10, would have been grown to 20, would have been back down to 10. So in the same period of time where mathematically or arithmetically, I truly have an average of 25% a year, I have less than I started with. Technically, I have the same 10, but when you net out fees and expenses and possibly taxes, I'm behind the eight ball. I'm picking a fund that's done 25% a year. It tells me nothing. It tells me it's the most volatile fund. There could be a fund in that portfolio that does 3% internal rate of return a year that's going to be way better than the 10, you know, 25% a year average return. People don't understand that. And sometimes you have to show them so they, they start to understand how important it is to not chase a return unless you fully understand where it comes from, but to also understand what the real returns have been over what is considered to be a positive trajectory for the last 20 years. And then show them how they're not going to be worse off by doing something that compounds yes at a lower rate but it compounds more than makes up for it so you know that's the 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 myth of average return is probably the biggest one we run into a lot with clients because you know they they get fed the the propaganda of what something's done and they don't understand really what it means the fact that there's no compounding doesn't give you an edge at all and um, those are simple fundamentals of financing and finances that you need to understand and embrace if you want to get ahead. You don't need to take a lot of risk if you do things right. When you do things wrong, you need probably to take risk to make up for the times when those wrong decisions don't pan out. So everybody's doing it backwards. They are. And it's it's really remarkable. You know, like you, I work with a lot of business owners, and they have figured out a way to create wealth but they haven't quite figured out a way to keep that wealth, right? Accumulate and preserve that wealth. It's really striking because what they end up doing is they end up investing in real estate, end up investing in some exotic investments, right? And they start losing money, chasing more wealth. When if they just focused on creating the wealth in their business, which they've figured out and they can do well, and then preserving it, they would be so much farther along. Have you experienced this? With my business owner clients, especially in Detroit, where many of them early in my career were tool and die guys, tier one and two suppliers to the automotive. They made a lot of money, had nice firms, a lot of employees. And where times were good they they assumed they'd always be good. So they didn't really focus on the plan B. The plan A was, well, when I get ready to retire, I'm going to sell this business. It's going to be worth a lot of money. And my question would always be, what if it? What if you can't sell the business? What's your plan B? Well, I they would say, I know I can sell the business. I'll be able to sell it. Well, you know, it's like guys who buy a lot of real estate. I had a client 
that I just met, a referral who the first things out of his mouth is, I don't know how you can help me. I, you know, I got a net worth of five or six million. I don't have a lot of debt. And I said, well, what's it comprised of? Well, three million was in a commercial building. Two million was in his house. Not a lot of liquidity. <laughs> He's 61. I said, how much rent do you get from your building? Well, I use it partially for my own business, so I don't really pay rent. And then I lease the rest out. He was getting like a, just under a 2% cash flow off this property. And I said, why don't you get rid of it? Why don't you liquidate, take the windfall, put it away for yourself for retirement, get out of the risk exposure, because you also have expenses along the way. You know, the HVAC system goes, the roof goes, the parking lot needs to be repaved. You have expenses along the way. You're only getting 2% return on the money now, and that's an if-come. You lose a tenant, now you just carry an asset at this big expense. So on the surface, you know, he thought that sounded like he's wealthy, but he's wealthy on paper but it's not doing anything for them. So, you know, people have misconceptions. Then you have the problem of guys who have been so successful that they get bored. Mm -hmm. It came too easy. And then they have the midlife crisis. You know, I'm going to buy a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Why would you you do that? Have you ever run a restaurant? No, but I'm going to buy one. I looked into it. My accountant looked at the books. They make a lot of money. My first question is, how do you know you're looking at the accurate set of books? A lot of those guys, kind of keep two sets of books. <laughs> I mean, how do you know it's making any money, you know? And if you've never done it, are you looking to work another 80 hours, 80 hours a week to keep on top of people that you don't trust and they're handling cash? You know, they get these whims. So if I've learned anything, it's like sometimes we have to be, you have to teach clients to be grateful for what they have and then to to grow what they have. To stick with what you know. Stick with what you're good at. Build wealth that way. Turtle in the hair story, for God's sakes, you know, keep progressing. It's like an ascending staircase. We don't know what the riser is going to be, but we know what the tread is. It's the same. Every year I step a foot forward, I step up. How much up, I don't know, but at least it's up. It's not down. And if we stay the course and we show them how important it is to, to you know, you plan for the worst, you hope for the best, right? What are most of them doing it? They're planning for the best and don't have a plan B for the worst. It's insane. So, yeah, I mean, we see it every day. And it, sometimes it's very difficult to get them to get their thinking around reality. And most people do very little in terms of risk management and personal finance. You know, big corporations have risk management departments. Every financial decision is is flushed out and vetted for a range of results. Best case, worst case, and the worst case, can we live with it? You know, that type of decision process. Individuals don't do any risk management. <laughs> they don't even know what risk management is. They're just plugging along, making decisions, random decisions, adding to their balance sheet at times and think they're doing things fine. But do they really understand the risk exposures that exist that could pull the rug out from under them? They don't. And so as advisors, it's our job to kind of take time, be patient, ask all these good questions to help them understand reality so that they don't, you know, involuntarily and typically at no fault of their own, you know, get a rude awakening when the external environment goes against them in any number of ways, right? Well said. No, absolutely. And there are a couple things. There's peer pressure in terms of investing in other businesses or investing in other more exotic strategies, right? There's hormones that come into play. There's 
you know, the hormones when you're younger and you think you're invincible and you've got money and you can invest in all these different, you know, in your friend's company or in oil and gas. And, you know, it's chasing that return. It's that constant chasing of return. And then the other side of the hormone equation is when you're older and you don't have the hormones that allow you to think as clearly. You might be more conservative because you're more afraid, but you're not thinking as clearly, right? So there's ego, there's peer pressure, there's hormones, there's emotional issues, there's the relationship that you have to money and whether you believe that you're worthy of being wealthy, right? There are people that really don't believe that and whatever wealth they've accumulated, they're going to get rid of one way or the other. I mean, there's so many factors in in what we do and you said it best, you know, plan for the worst and hope for the best. Have a plan B, a plan C, a plan D, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's important. You know, what you just described is really human nature. Everybody's going to go through different, you know, periods uh, of emotions and different periods of thinking. Look, when I hit 50, before I was 50 years old, I didn't think a lot about my own mortality. I really didn't. Cause I was like, well, I'm not going to die for a long time. You know, it's still I'm average age of 86. Probably I'm going to, I'm going to be at least average. And then when I got over 50, I found myself in my quiet time, just thinking and reflecting and saying, have I done the things I need to do? Are my own plan B's in place? Are my family going to be taken care of? Have I properly planned for them so that they can carry on? Should something happen to me? I mean, I truly started thinking more and more of my own mortality and what that would mean to the people that count on me. And, uh, and now I'm almost 60. I'm 59 and I'm thinking, well, gosh, time. And, and the other thing is time goes faster the older you get. It just clips by. And we have this short period of time in our lives to build a plan and then stick with it. I've always said if you get a plan and stick with it, it's better than a plan you can't stick with. I'd rather somebody committing to a thinner plan, a thinner commitment of putting money away for themselves, but something they know they can stick with. Here's a classic example. A CPA brings me a client a number of years back, and he says, Keith, I know you do a lot of advanced planning for, for people, and it was my CPA firm, so one of the associates brought me a, a business owner client who was making a lot of money. And the guy said, <clears throat> I want to, I want you to show my client here how, uh, some ideas on how to you know, put a lot of money away before tax because he hates how much tax he's paying. And he was making maybe a million a year. And um, I said, okay. Then I showed him a few ideas that were fairly creative, but, but you know, black and white, just just a little advanced. And a guy wanted to put away $450,000 a year. And I said, well, that's fine. Obviously, there's no reason for me to tell you you can't do it, but I have a couple questions for you. Because any plan you start should be a plan you can stick with, at least for five years, okay, uh, with minimal flexibility being built in. But if you start with that number, I want to know it's a number you can do for five years. And um, I said, so do me a favor, close your eyes, and I want you to envision your business going through a tough time, and why don't you translate for me the worst it would be? What's the, what's the least amount of money you could put away, even if things, if things were really tough? And he thought about it and he said, I can probably always do 150 grand a year. I said, well, that's what we'll start with because 
I'm not going to be a co-author to failure. And just because things are good now doesn't mean they're going to be good in the future. So let's start that way. Let's go down the road a few years. And if things continue to, the outlook looks great and we want to hedge things up, we can, we can modify. Two years into the plan, I get a call and he's panicking. I just lost a couple big accounts. I can't do 150. I can only do 50. And I said, okay. Well, I guess we just realized why it was probably good. We didn't start at 450. And, and that's what happens. It's like when I tried to sell a client's business to a private equity firm about 12 years ago, things were great. They were making a lot of money. They had a $20 million pipeline in, in receivables and work product and whip, you know, work in process. And the guy said to me, him and his partner were taking out a million and a half a year out of the business net. Uh, we had a big, you know, we had qualified plans in place and other stuff. I said, why don't we sell this business? You guys are in your mid fifties. I think we can get you a lot of money. Things are good. That's the time to sell. And their response was, why would I sell for 20 million when we don't only get 10 and have to pay tax and we're already making a million and a half a year? We wouldn't be able to live. We wouldn't be able to duplicate our income for the rest of our lives. He said, well, but they're willing to give you 20 now. And you guys could go retire and live a comfortable life and play golf and boat and do all the things you like to do and not have the stress of 180 employees or the hassles of the bank when you're at a ratio. Got to come up with more money and lines of credit and all the rest of the crap that goes along with running a big operation. And they declined it, which was fine. It was their prerogative. I was just there to bring the idea to the table and try to help them. Well, guess what happened? Two years later, the automotive companies started all downsizing. You know, they're outsourcing to China and all that. You've heard all that. And most of the job shops and tool and dyes in this town closed up. These guys narrowed down to a skeleton crew, kept about 12 employees out of 187 just to keep the doors open. Their income dried up. And the one guy came back to me and said, do you think those guys still want to buy our business? <laughs> <laughs> I, I said, no, <laughs> that opportunity has long since been gone. But here's the classic human nature, getting back to your human nature and things that go into people making the right and wrong decisions. Mm -hmm. When things are great, everybody thinks they're always going to be great. Mm -hmm. Why would I sell now? I'm making a lot of money. It's always going to be great. Their plan B was to sell that business for retirement. Guess what? Not only could they not sell it, but they ended up having to sell their building and plant and downsize and restructure their business and learn to live on a lot less money, which mm -hmm. in retrospect, you know, in life, you don't get do-overs, right? I like to tell clients that a lot. You don't get a do-over. When we were kids, you'd remember you'd say, I want a do-over, right? You don't get do-overs. You can't turn the hands of the time back. You better think through this stuff. And, and that's why we as advisors are so important, at least the good ones of us are so important to our clients, because it's not about a product or a sale or anything like that. It's about helping them understand reality and being a sounding board that they can vet their ideas through so we can give them the thumbs up or thumbs down. I just had a doctor client, you know, who died, I think I told you, but years ago, he'd wanted to buy some buildings in a rundown city in, in Michigan, up by Flint, where you've probably heard of the news, they had all these water problems. It's mm. basically a ghost town. It's a ghost town. And he drove me there to show me them. And I said, why are you doing this? It's a bad decision. I wouldn't do it. Don't do this. Well, there's a big shipbuilding company coming in, and I think they're going to build ships here again. I said, that's speculative. You don't know that. And what if they don't? Well, he bought the buildings, and then, long story short, ended up getting foreclosed on because the shipbuilding company didn't come in, and then he couldn't carry the payments. And 
lost and he lost all that money. Okay, so we there's a tendency to make decisions based on emotion. My dad always told me, make all your financial decisions based on math. Keep the emotion out of it. The more you can keep emotion out of any financial decision, the more your tendency is going to be to do make a good decision. The minute emotion comes in, for whatever reason, in whatever form, you've lost the game. You can't allow it. As advisors, we can be objective. Yes, do I feel bad when my clients lose money making a bad decision? Sure. But I'm not going to be a co-author of that decision. If I feel I can stop them from making it, I'm going to try my darndest. But at the end of the day, I'm objective. I don't have skin in the game. It's not my money. I have no emotion. My recommendations are based on on math and facts. I don't speculate, and but but if they want to, they can. So see, we we play a very important role as a sounding board. Somebody who can they can bounce things off of. Somebody who can give them some insight that they haven't thought about. Somebody who can actually take the emotion out of the decision, and then run it through a filter and stress test it for them completely objectively. So that they don't go off and do something dumb. And that's, I think, where our value comes in. So to turn that around back to whole life insurance, you know, many times, I'm sure you've heard, you know, the math just doesn't work there. You know, whole life insurance, it's so expensive. It just doesn't work. Before we wrap up this conversation, and it's been great, Keith. I mean, the you know, your understanding the world of finance and how you explain it is just so refreshing and and so awesome to hear. But, you know, let's put a bow on, you know, the whole life insurance and math. Okay. It's always interesting when I hear the math doesn't add up because I actually think it does for many reasons. Look, if you believe that there's more value to get more than one use out of every dollar, I commit. You know, if I if I spend a dollar, it's gone. But if I spend a dollar and three or four things I get from it, that's better than getting one thing, right? Can we agree to that? Of course. Sure. And I would typically ask clients, look, I'm not going to put a name on this financial instrument. Specifically, when we're talking about a whole life recommendation for some degree of their assets at some point in their plan. But I'm going to ask them a very simple question. Let's go through some attributes of what would be a perfect financial instrument. Liquidity, safety, guarantees, tax favorability, both on accumulation and distribution. No limit on what you can store in this financial instrument. Flexibility, tax-free when it goes to your heirs. Uh, you know, voids probate. Uh, I mean, there's so many attributes. Tell me, Mr. Client. What other financial instrument has all these attributes? And if if there is one, let's talk about it, because you obviously want a financial instrument with all these attributes, right? And they would say, yes. Well, tell me what other instrument has all these attributes. And they can't think of one because there isn't one. We enjoy a very unique characterization and status within the tax code. We enjoy a very unique foundation that backs the assets in these type of plans. All these companies we used are stable financially and have solvency ratings that, you know, leave them with three to four times the amount of money they need on the balance sheet uh, as a multiple of any obligations they've taken on. I mean, it's the safest industry. It's a reasonable return, but every dollar does so many things. Whereas if we were to deconstruct it and try to individually uh, use our dollars to acquire the same amount of benefits and attributes, but separately, we'd spend way more money to get it all, right? 
So we try, you know, to me, look, I haven't met anybody yet who can tell me why it doesn't make sense. I can hear, I hear a lot of people say, I don't think it makes sense, or I've heard bad things, or the internal rate of return's not there compared to what? Tell me what we're comparing it to. You know, compared to other safe money asset classes that'll always be there, that compound will always grow, never lose. That's actually tax favored. You don't ever get a 1099 or pass through income you got to pay tax on. I mean, completely liquid. I mean, no management fees. Tell me what other financial instrument does all this. And, and if there is one, let's look at that, but let's figure out what portion of your assets you want to have in an instrument that has all these attributes. It's totally safe. It'll grow forever. Now, everybody has a different number. Younger people say, I'd like 25% of my money in something like that. I always want to have something safe. Older people, I want, you know, 50% of my money in something safe or 60 or 70%. It's not my answer. It's their answer. You tell me how much you want to have absolutely safe with those kind of attributes always growing, which will actually hedge the stuff that's speculative in the down years. And then we'll just design a plan to show you how to deploy the dollars into that bucket and, and receive those benefits. But never have I ever had a problem trying to tell people why it makes sense once they give me the time to sit down and show them all the things that it does for them and how. Um, you know, it's it's kind of crazy, but it's the most misunderstood financial instrument that exists, largely because the industry has done a really poor job marketing it. And there's a reason for that. Look, whole life is a financial instrument that's backed by the assets of the company. Okay. Universal life, variable life, IUL, those are all built on a chassis where the company's assets are not what's backing it. It's all speculative investments that back it. It's, it's, there's all, all the, the client takes all the risk. The company takes no risk, but they get their fees. Why have the companies pushed all those other products? Because they get fees with no risk. That's it right there. If you were the company, you'd want to be in a position where you get all the fee income and no risk. But with whole life, it's different. In whole life, the mutual companies, the people that run those companies are just stewards of our money. We are the shareholders. Policyholders are the shareholders. They work for us. There's a fiduciary responsibility. The money's not at risk. They're managing it on our behalf. And they usually manage it with a very lean, you know, expense structure at the companies. So they're managing it on our behalf. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing a deal with somebody and I'm sitting across the table, I'd rather have somebody that shares my interest in the deal. I don't want somebody who's opposed to me in terms of whose interests come first. The insurance industry makes a lot of money on other products that, to me, will not protect the policyholders as well as whole life will. And if I'm going to commit a lot of money to any financial instrument, it's very important to me to have financial backing and know it's going to be there. I'm not looking to speculate and throw my money away, right? So the industry probably could do a better job, but very few companies anymore have designed or have policy forms of whole life that allow for overfunding and the creative ways we use them because they've all gone the route of the flexible chassis, which gives them all the fees and takes a lot of the risk away. And they've mostly all of them across the board have committed all the resources to those kind of products because those companies have shareholders and the shareholders come first before the policyholders. With mutual companies, we are the shareholders. I don't ever want to come second to somebody else's interests when it's talking about my money. So I think the industry could do a better job marketing maybe, but there's a lot less companies that do it anymore. So we're very fortunate to still have companies that are good, solid companies that do it. 
and give us an opportunity to employ, employ those products in our various client strategies and help them. And, you know, for me, that's, that's what it's all about. I don't ever want an advisor to look over my shoulder. I never want to look over my shoulder in 10 or 20 years from now when those promises have to be kept, find out that those companies can't deliver down the road. And that's why that's the only product I'll use is dividend paying whole life, period. It serves a purpose. Is it 100% of their money? Probably not. But like I said at the beginning, everybody can benefit to some degree somewhere in their portfolio for a portion of their assets to be in the safe asset class. And I can sleep at night. That's it. Couldn't have said it better. I totally agree. I got so much out of it as always when I have a conversation with you. It always elevates my understanding. I always walk away with a different way of thinking and communicating the concept because we're, we're always learning. It's always that challenge of how can we speak, you know, in, in the average man's you know, terminology so we can communicate just how awesome our strategy is. And so I thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, we'll love to have you back on Living Wealthy Radio. Anytime. Really enjoyed it. Glad we could spend a little time and have yourself a great day. And I'm sure I'll be talking to you soon. Absolutely. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Living Wealthy Radio, heard around the web on livingwealthyradio.com, iTunes, and Blog Talk Radio. Download or subscribe to our podcast to hear a new show every week. I am Teresa Kuhn, and I hope you'll join me again next week as I show you ways to live wealthier. Resources are available for you on our website at livingwealthyradio.com. 